Welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 157, Gen Z's Toughest Sex and Marriage Questions. Hello and welcome, and I am your host, Lori Krieg, and my usual co-host and husband, Matt, is with the kids, God bless him, but we do have the ever-faithful and most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi, guys. Hey, Steve. Thanks so much for holding down the fort in studio. Uh, Guys, I'm so excited to dive into this conversation today on tackling some of Gen Z's toughest questions on sex and marriage and singleness. But before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that you can not only hear this, but you can watch this episode on Vimeo and on YouTube. Just search Lori Creek, L-A-U-R-I-E-K-R-I-E-G. And you can see who our guest is today to help us tackle some of these tough Gen Z questions. And who is our guest? It is none other than the Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean, welcome. Lori and Steve, thanks for having me. Man, we are so glad to have you. Man, if you guys do not know Dr. Sean McDowell, he is an associate professor in the Christian Apologetics Program at Talbot School of Theology, which is a part of Biola University, so you're in Southern California there. He's also the co-host for the Think Biblically podcast and has written, co-written, or edited more than 20 books. Holy cats, including the one we will be exploring today, Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. And he's been leading, has a leading apologetics blog at seanmcdowell.org. And you've been married to your wife for about 20 years. And didn't you meet her in like third grade? I read that in your book, right? You know what? I grew up in a small town in the mountains of California. It's called Julian, San Diego County. And I just have this memory in third grade of my friend Jesse asking me to sit by this girl, Stephanie, to see if she thought he was cute. And I don't know what she said, and I have no idea why I remember that, but that's my first memory of her. I love that. Also, my heart gets a little terrified because I have a six-year-old who is my oldest, (laughs) and it may or may not be falling in love every other minute with certain people, guys in her class. And I'm like, no, are those your future son-in-law? Anyway, uh, but you are in Southern California. And as we said before we got rolling today, we congratulated each other on being some of the worst pandemic hit states. Good job. (laughs) Well, misery loves company, doesn't it? (laughs) We sure do. Oh, man. Well, I'm really, when I saw your book uh, post on Amazon, it came out early December, right? Did it just, it came out in early December? That's right, yeah. Okay, I was like, ooh, we got to interview this guy. And so I was so glad that you said yes, so that we can talk about tackling some of Gen Z's toughest questions. But first, let's take the question of the week from last week, uh, which I did not get a chance to ask you, the audience. So sorry, people listening. You can still email me at podcast at com if you want to answer. But Sean, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you know, here we are, locked down for probably the 25th, thousandth time. How are you keeping up with your physical health? Like, I have neighbors who've created a whole home gym. Are you home gym guy? What's your deal? You know what? Th- this might not be what some of your audience wants to hear, but to be honest, I've been in the best shape of my life. Oh, snap. <laughs> well, here's the reason for that is my 16-year-old son loves basketball. I mean, he loves it. And I played in college and usually I play like once every three months. And he's been like, dad, let's play every single day for six months. So I just had this special connection with my son, which means I've just kind of been forced to get into 
to better shape. So that's kind of the honest answer since that's you asked. <laughs> oh, that's really sweet. Steve, I already started asking you and you had a pretty funny answer. Yeah. Go well, for it. I've been doing a lot of um, P90X and hardcore ab no. um, uh, <laughs> program no, is what I want to say, uh, but I can't. <laughs> I cannot tell a lie. Uh, I, I feel like I've been getting a lot more sleep lately, um, which I feel like is good for my health. Uh, so that's my exercise program. Go to bed earlier. Don't wake up earlier. Just add an hour to my actual <laughs> like sleep regimen and uh and and that's that's what i've been focusing on here during the pandemic i love it (laughs) oh man um i am running and i am a runner and i started that i don't know five years ago six maybe ten i don't know i've been running for a while but it's a lot it's at least 80 percent for mental health as it is for physical health but it's been really good and i've been trying to listen to the bible more as opposed to just like Christian rap, to be honest with you. That gets me running, Steve and mm-hmm. Sean. Uh, but I've been listening to the Bible, and it's actually been really good. Um, and not making me, like, only hear my puffs of breath underneath the Bible, where I get really angry about why am I running. So it's been really good for my soul and emotional health and body. Um, I just have one quick story about my husband on physical health. So he has, he got for Christmas last year, one of those Fitbits and he doesn't, he works a lot of nights as a therapist. And so he gets home and he's like, oh man, I got to do something. And so he'll just, he'll run in place really fast. And then the next day he'll look at his Fitbit and it's like, you did an elliptical or you went swimming. It's trying to guess what he's doing. And he's just like wiggling his arms. Like he's on dumb and dumber and just running in place. That's what Matt's doing. I love Matt. That's awesome. (laughs) Let's shift, Sean. And we, the purpose of this podcast is to talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. And so we want to ask you this question that we've been asking every guest preceding you, which is uh, actually a set of questions. If the gospel is, I am more loved than I imagine, and yet more sinful than I believe, when was the gospel first good news for you? And how is it still today? So I grew up in a Christian home. Some of your audience might recognize the the name of my father, Josh McDowell. He's written, uh, I think, 150 some books, spoken at 1200 universities. He's just had, he's 81 right now and he's still plugging away. And he and my mom were with crew and I, Camps Crusade for Christ. So I grew up hearing the gospel. It always made sense to me. Uh, I think the time it probably really clicked was in college. And one was, I just, uh, this is like mid nineties. And I started, people are like, Hey, you can Google stuff and not officially Google, but you could search things and find blogs. And I start searching all these things and discover that actually the secular web kind of began taking my dad's book, evidence that demands a verdict chapter by chapter and getting doctors, historians, philosophers, lawyers to respond to it. So I'm reading this stuff. I don't even remember how I stumbled across it. I'm reading it going, oh my goodness. I had no idea there were such thoughtful, smart challenges to stuff. I mean, if you had asked me in high school, why wasn't someone a Christian? I think my answer might've been, well, they just hadn't read one of my dad's books. Like, how hard is it? There's the evidence. You know, that was probably Mm -hmm. the level of depth of my faith. Right. And then at that point, it really rocked me. And I remember saying, meeting with my dad just sometime after that, like, saying to him, dad, I want to know it's true, but 
I got to be honest, I'm not sure I'm convinced this is fully true. I got a lot of questions. And my dad is somebody who or the glass is like 99% full. Aww. He goes, he goes, son, I think that's great. You're seeking truth and you can't live on my faith. You know, I love you anyways. Kind of gave one of those like pub up speeches. And, you know, I, when I share that, I don't want to over dramatize it because I growing up in the church. I'd heard, heard so many dramatic testimonies and thought like, God can't use me until this dramatic testimony. But it was, it was a pretty significant moment in my life of like, okay, I got to figure out if I believe this, if this is real and understand what it actually means for my life. Mm. Okay. So you made, you wrestled through and I'm assuming you made a decision at some point. You're like, yeah, this, we actually interviewed Oz Guinness last week. Um, Great. And we talked about, you know, Francis Schaefer and like, is this true truth? So do you, you hit a point where you're like, okay, this is true truth. You know, and I, for example, when I hear my dad tell the story, he he had set out to disprove Christianity from from he was an agnostic. And he has like this moment at 11 p.m. at night in this <laughs> London library. And I'm like, I don't remember this big moment. It was kind of yeah. this gradual like, OK, that makes sense. OK, this makes sense. Looking back on, I really do believe this. And it makes sense to me. And a big piece of it, too, was really just I think for I think there's two big pieces. I think for someone to really have a genuine faith, they have to know that Christianity is true and they have to really experience God's grace. Mm-hmm. And I remember during this journey, for whatever reason, just realizing, whoa, I really need God. I'm just as sinful and broken as anybody else. More the story of like the older son than the prodigal son. So it's kind of those two things coming together, but there wasn't yeah. just this flashing moment like, ah, oh, it makes sense, Lori got this. It was yeah. just it was just a process for me. Yeah. Okay. But today, how do you need Jesus today? How do you need the good news of the gospel today? How do I need the gospel today? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I need the gospel every day, every moment. For me, I'm well aware of my brokenness and need for a savior pretty much moment by moment. So I can't hardly think of, I don't think I can love, be a good dad to my kids without it. I don't think I can be a good husband. I don't think I can be faithful on my job um, without the truth of the gospel and at least be authentic about it. Mm. Yeah. And especially today and now in 20... (laughs) 21 as we're starting this new year. Oh man, we need him. Okay. I want to ask more questions about your life and story, but I really appreciate both that, but, and this book that you wrote, uh, chasing love, sex, love, and relationships in a confused culture. Why that book now? And who, who's your intended audience? So it's written for students. And I had my daughter who was 12 read the manuscript ahead of time. And I'll be honest, like I uh, manipulate her with new shoes if she would read it and talk to me about it. I'll do whatever whatever it takes to get my kids to engage these ideas. So for me, that's about as young as I would go. But it's really Mm -hmm. written. Junior high could read it even into high school. And actually, I wrote it for a couple of reasons. There's this campaign that started in 1993 called True Love Waits that's been put on by the Southern Baptists that it's been massively influential. And uh, they have written books and done curriculum series. And they actually came to me and said, hey, we're reinventing this, we're adapting this. Would you be kind of our spokesperson, so to speak, where you'd write a book and help us develop some curriculum? And I had to 
think about it for a number of reasons. But eventually, I think there, there were there were a couple of things that I guess maybe makes my approach to this unique. Another one would be not only was my father an apologist, but he actually led the first global sexual abstinence campaign in the 80s called Why Wait before True Love Waits. Hmm. So when I was like 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, my dad is leading this global sexual purity campaign. So I'm coming to age while he's talking about this and writing books and doing video series. So I have a lot of experience in terms of directly how this message affects a young person. So I thought in that sense, I could have a unique point, but also I've been teaching high school for 20 years. I'm now a college professor as well. Uh, speak to tens of thousands of young people and then I have three teenagers in my home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is an issue I've been speaking on. I've been writing on, I've been talking about, but never thought, why don't I just put all my thoughts in a book from issues like pornography, God's design for sex, sex abuse, LGBTQ issues. So when they came to me, as I just reflected on, I was like, wow, the cultural conversation has changed a lot. And I couldn't find, I can't justify a book unless I feel like I have something at least unique to say. And I couldn't find a book that I felt like really approached this issue practically, but also with genuine theological and worldview depth to it that gives the why behind God's teaching. Mm. What I so appreciated too is in contrast to maybe some of those early well-intentioned books is you include things like singleness as an equally valuable vocation and um, LGBT without it being like them out there, those people. And so I, I really appreciated that, you know, holistic nuanced approach. Okay, but who is Gen Z? For people who are listening, who are they're called Zoomers. They're not millennials. But what age group is that? Yeah, so they're basically those you might say about 10 to 25 years old right now. So mm. upper elementary kids through those just getting out of college. So they're after millennials. Millennials are gone and they're not just millennials 2.0. They're a new young generation that probably the defining characteristic, like you said, Zoomers really captures it. This is the first truly digitally native generation. Mm. They've been swiping smartphones and tablets before many of them could read or even speak. I think that defines their relationships and that defines their worldview more than anything. But when you think of Gen Z, other names would be iGen. I've heard trans generation titled for them, the selfie generation but Gen Z has stuck. It's basically 10 to 25 right now. Okay. And why sex and sexuality and singleness? Why talk about that with them? Um, I have my own thoughts, but why is that important? Well, first off, I love that you picked up on that because including singleness was very intentional because I think over the past few decades, the church has probably unintentionally given a message that says, hey, If you just aren't sexually active right now, God will bring that spouse into your life and you'll have endless sexual bliss for the rest of your life. And if you're single, we'll kind of treat you suspiciously as if you haven't arrived yet and you're just waiting to find that spouse. And especially you start getting 30, 35, we're going to really be suspicious about this. Well, 
sadly, that's the message that the church has given, not always in words, but in the way that we even organize and structure a church. To me, that's not only not helpful in our cultural moment, it's not biblical. I mean, just read 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, and it's clear that marriage and singleness are both good, beautiful, equal ways of honoring and serving the Lord. They both are. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is like, hey, marriage has some freedom, but it has some challenges. Singleness has some freedom. Singleness has some challenges. In fact, I've never even heard a sermon where somebody quotes Paul saying, actually, I wish you would stay single. I've never heard a sermon on that, Laurie. And I've heard a million sermons like I'm sure you have. So Mm. one of the reasons it's just flat out biblical, but also the typical student reading this is going to be 14, 16, 18 years old, and they're single. And studies are showing people are getting married later than ever if they get married. So that means a kid probably reading this book is halfway in their life to getting married anyways. So they're going to be single the next decade, roughly. But then the reality is, and you know this, you and I are both married, but there's a chance that a spouse leaves a spouse. You're single for a season. A spouse passes away. I mean, these are realities. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, even who get married, find themselves single for a season. So what is a theology of singleness? How do we honor God in our singleness? And how do we flip the narrative that singleness equals loneliness? When I have a lot of single friends who say, hey, there's some serious challenges, but there's a unique way I can serve the Lord and build healthy relationships too. Mm. So what I love about uh, your book is you want to have a conversation, but it's a book. So you have to write words, but you fill it with questions. (laughs) You're both asking questions for reflection. And then you're asking yourself questions on, and you're chewing on it in a way that's easily digestible uh, for your target audience and myself included. I guess my question, my first one for you, before we dive into some um, that I want to ask you that Gen Z may be asking as pushback for a biblical sexual ethic is what's the primary pushback you here of, okay, here's God's design for marriage and sexuality and singleness and LGBT and gender, all of it. Like, what's the primary one when you posture, here's God's beautiful biblical design? What are the kids, what are the young people saying these days to you as the primary pushback against that? So let me frame this in two ways. I think there's a big pushback they have that they don't even realize that I need to help them realize that they have. And then there's the obvious direct pushback that I get. So the direct pushback is related more to LGBTQ questions. For probably the past decade, maybe 15 years, these questions have been coming up. The last two to three years, it's it's shifted from same-sex marriage, although that comes up sometimes more towards questions of gender. So anytime I do a Q&A, anytime I talk on this related issue, that's the elephant in the room. Even Christian kids want to know, how do I love my LGBTQ friends? I don't want to be bigot. I don't want to be hateful. I know what the Bible says, but I don't have a clue why the Bible says what it says. It's a friend of mine, Rachel Gilson, who works with crew. She said, I think even most Christian kids are softly affirming just because the narrative they've gotten in the culture and many relationships that they have, and they're torn with that. So that's kind of the obvious question I get all the time. Uh, underline that, I would say 
that this generation has such a faulty view of what freedom is. And you mentioned Os Guinness. He's someone who's written a lot on this with as much clarity as anybody. There's a faulty view of what love is. So they bring that to, uh, to the scriptures. And also in the back of their minds is that the biblical sexual ethic, it's outdated. It's not relevant. I know we're told to love the Bible, but this was written 2,000 years ago. They don't understand me. I think that's the background of how most Christian kids even approach this issue, whether they've articulated it or not. So where do you begin? That was actually, you know, with Oz and I actually invited my dad, where we have some differences politically, et cetera, to co-host with me and ask him questions. Cool. And I said, help me, guys. You're talking to me about truth and about what real freedom is will you please help like i hear you but butting up and i hear you sean butting up against culture and these students and i'm i'm thinking about parents listening who are like help how do i even stink and communicate with my child i know what's true they're not feeling it it's in a culture of feelings where do you begin sean if they're pushing back there how do you step into their question well, the first thing to do is just to build relationships with our kids. So we're even in a place to have these conversations. Yeah. So I, I tell parents more than anything else, if you could just let your kid know, God, my parents love me and you're modeling what it means to love a spouse, then you, you're you're 80% there, 70% there. Then the question is, how do I then cross this barrier and start to counter these faulty ideas that are coming across culture? I think that's best done in conversation. If I could give one piece of advice, it would be to have conversations with your kids. And studies reveal that it actually is conversations over the dinner table, when you're driving in the car, when you're anywhere else and you can get them to put their phones down. Uh, that's what builds a kid's worldview. So I'll give you just an example of a conversation. Now, this is in a classroom. I teach one class at a private school. Uh, a week at a Christian school, three mornings. And one of the chapters in the book that, that you, you read is on loving God with our bodies mm. and loving God with our souls. So I started by asking my students, I said, okay, give me an example of physical activities that communicate something. And they're like, okay, a handshake does. They're like a slap on the face, a kiss in the cheek. I said, does a kiss on the forehead communicate something different than a kiss in the cheek? They thought about it. So like the forehead is kind of a top down, whereas the cheek is side to side. Mm -hmm. I said, what about a kiss in the lips? Well, kiss the lips in some cultures can be a greeting. I said, what about a French kiss? And they all agreed that by its very nature is romantic and sexual. I said, okay, so physical activities, even a wink or a middle finger, some mm -hmm. are cultural, some are transcultural. Physical things communicate, don't they? And then I left him at the end. Here's what I want you to think about. And this morning when we're done, I'm going to go talk to him about this. I said, what does sex communicate? Mm. What does it communicate? What does it mean? And I hope they start to realize that it means something like permanency because a child could result from this. It means commitment. It means trust. So what I'm trying to do is I know that deep underneath the surface, these kids are made in God's image. They want to love and they want to be loved. But they've been so clouded by these faulty ideas that I'm trying to bring to the surface and say, you know, 
that sex means something, don't you? So when our culture throws around like it's nothing, doesn't that betray what you know to be true? I mean, we were talking about in, in my class, I was saying sometimes our culture says sex is everything or our culture says sex is nothing. And both those are a myth. And one, one of my students is like, yeah, I don't think non-Christians know that. I said, really? I said, don't actually do this, but imagine you take out a daughter of a non-Christian dad. And after the day you go, yeah, we went to a movie, we went to McDonald's and we had sex. And they all laughed. And I said, why did you laugh? Because you know, go to a movie and having a milkshake is not the same thing as having sex. You know that, don't you? So even non-Christians know this. Mm. What's my point? I could talk about this for an hour, is that I'm just trying to ask questions, get them to realize something more deeply. And the point in this is that sex means something. So the final question I'll say is if we communicate with our bodies and sex means something, then how do we love God and love other people with our bodies? Mm. What does that mean? And what does that look like? Mm. To me, it's those kind of questions and making those connections in relationship that helps a kid build a lasting biblical sexual ethic. So good. And if people are listening right now, parents, aunts, uncles, mentors, uh, ministry leaders, youth pastors, whoever is listening right now, and you're like, okay, but I'm not Sean McDowell. I'm not, I didn't write (laughs) this book. Guys, just read this book because to have these actual conversations, you need to read something and get it in your own soul and in your practice. I was reading that in 2 Corinthians 12 today about Paul's like, I don't want to preach anything that people cannot see in my life first. So if you don't understand, Mm -hmm. if you're a leader listening or a parent listening, you don't understand what's the purpose of sex. Just check this out. You do a really beautiful way, Sean, of like, here's the three different purposes. And I was like, oh, this is so good. So start there. But Sean, you know, without buying the book, I would love to just jump in for a little bit and ask you some questions that perhaps parents, ministry leaders are hearing right now, including this one, which is they Gen Z may be saying, okay, on LGBT, why would God keep me or my friends from loving who they want to love? They throw the love word out there, and then it feels like the that's the ace in the hole. So, well, that's not I'm a, a quite a metaphor. So, uh, no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> I said ace in the hole. I'm glad you used. It. <laughs> We're just gonna keep going with it, guys. We're just gonna keep going with ace in the hole. That's a new phrase. Okay, I love that. go don't, ahead. Don't edit that out. That was that was priceless. <laughs> keep it in there. Um, So if I'm speaking to a non-Christian, my answer is going to be a little different than a Christian. Okay. Because with a non-Christian, there's no authority that God exists, that God has spoken through his word. So my approach will be, okay, I would say something like, all right, before we talk about how God wants you to live and use your bodies, let me ask you a question. If there were evidence that a God actually existed and cared about you, would you be open to hearing that evidence and that story of what this God is like? Mm. Because to me, with a non-Christian, if they want to know, why does God say I'm against same-sex marriage? Why can't you change your gender? They don't have the same authority of a God who exists, who designed the world to be a certain way and has revealed himself through scripture. So I'm happy to have those conversations, but there's a prior conversation that has to take place And if they say, you know what, I'm actually not interested in that evidence, then there's basically nothing I could say that could convince them 
that a sexual ethic is good if they don't even believe in God and care what a God would supposedly say. Now, with, with a Christian, I would say, keep in mind, God has designed us to love him and love other people. That's why we're here. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and to love other people. But he also said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Mm -hmm. So even if you don't fully understand God's commands, I guess my first question for you is, are you willing to be obedient and follow him, even if it doesn't perfectly make sense? Mm. Are you willing? Ooh. Okay, next question. Why do you call that brokenness? I get a lot of pushback from even Christians when I say I this is my version of sexual brokenness. I'm not saying I'm extra broken. I'm not whatever. I wrestle with attractions toward the same gender. And I am getting a ton of pushback. I've had people try and rescue me from my marriage saying, stop calling yourself broken. You need to divorce your husband and live into oh, your truth. Gosh. Multiple times. And they're really actually kind hearted people. But help, help me. What, what, what can we say? Is there a difference between non-Christians and Christians? I'm assuming there is. But what would you say well, to that? You know, if, if it was a non-Christian, I would say, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. And if you're okay with the LGBTQ narrative, I assume that you praise that because you want people to be authentic to who they are. Do you agree? Yes. Well, I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus and he taught a certain sexual ethic. And like our LGBTQ friends, I want to be authentic to that as well. Why wouldn't you want me to be authentic to who I am? Mm. That's what I've said. I mean, that's good. I want and I want to bring it to the person of Jesus because even though some people might criticize the Bible today, everybody still wants Jesus. And in Matthew 19, he taught a very clear sexual ethic pointing to Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So, that's one thing that I would say. But then the second thing I would say is I'd say, look, I'm not uniquely calling this brokenness. Mm -hmm. Actually, the Bible says all of us are broken. Mark chapter seven, Jesus said, it's out of the heart that comes idolatry and pride and sloth and lust. Um, in the Old Testament makes it clear that the heart is deceitful above all else. So I'm not standing saying everything else is fine and this is uniquely broken. I'm actually looking within myself, seeing a lot of brokenness. And that's why I hesitate to call anybody else out because I see the brokenness in my own heart. But if I'm to be faithful to what Jesus taught as a Jesus follower, I have to admit that he designed us to live a certain way. And by God's grace, I want to do my best to live that way. It's mm, good. Okay, freedom one, the freedom one. You already alluded to this one. I just need to be free. Why are you stopping me from my freedom? Whether it's, you know, want to look at porn, sleep with my girlfriend or boyfriend or whomever. Like, you're keeping me from my freedom. So practically, if somebody said that to me, I'd say, okay, can you give me a definition of what you think it means to be free? Because yeah. clearly this person and you and I, Lori, are differing over what is meant by freedom. And this is what, again, Os Guinness talks about and where I think I actually, when people ask me the question, what I think is the greatest 
lie this generation is tempted to believe. I think it's a false view about freedom. Mm-hmm. So I had a group of students I was speaking with maybe a year and a half ago, and this is Christian students, about a dozen of them. And I said, give me a definition of what it means to be truly free. And these are Christian kids again. And they said, to be able to do whatever you want without restraint. I said, okay, give me a picture of this. And as you read in the book, the picture was a person alone on an island yeah. where no one could stop them doing anything they want. I said, well, if God exists, would that change what's meant by freedom at all? And they thought about it. They came back. They said, well, freedom is to do whatever you want without restraint. But now there's consequences. Mm-hmm. All God adds to the question of freedom is consequences. Now, I explained to him a concept that I got from Os Guinness where he says they understand freedom from, which is lacking restraint, but they don't understand freedom for. So my smartphone sitting here has been designed for a purpose. It's not a scuba tank. It's not a, you know, a javelin or a paperweight, although you could try to use it for those things. It's only free when we understand its design Mm -hmm. and use it accordingly. So take a piano. If you own a piano, can someone sit down and just bang and do whatever they want in a piano? In one sense, you could say, hey, I'm free to bang a piano if I want to. But who's more free? The person who does that, the person who actually understands the purpose of the piano and has cultivated the discipline to play beautiful music and then does so. That person is actually more free and we know it. So I would challenge, if somebody ever said to me specifically, look, I'm like the way you phrase it, I'm free to look at porn if I want to. I'd say, let me ask you a question. Are you free to go a day or a week or a month without looking at porn? Mm. If not, don't tell me you're free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So good. I thought that was one of your most powerful points in the book was exactly what you just described. Okay. We're going to go back here because it's important. And I think this is critical for the church to confess that we've worshipped at the altar of marriage and sex and uh, to pivot to celebrating singleness. Um, I was at Q for the first time a few years ago and I was with Preston, our mutual friend, and a couple other people. And we were asked... A question. Okay, well, if this is God's design for marriage, how are you going to solve the loneliness problem? So, mm. if the only option is male female, then how how are you going to solve the loneliness problem? So, I can picture Gen Z asking that of their parents or youth pastors. Okay, I'm attracted to the same sex, or my friend is, or whatever. I, I'm just supposed to be lonely. How do you step in there? How do you step into that? Part of the problem is the assumption that marriage is the fix to loneliness. You know this, Lori. Marriage is not the fix to loneliness. Mm -hmm. If somebody is lonely and they think getting getting married is going to magically fix that, they're going to be disappointed. Sam Albury, who is a same-sex attracted single pastor, He said in his experience, he says, it's actually a lot of married people that I have harder counseling for with them where there's a deeper sense of loneliness. Mm -hmm. So part of the problem is the cultural framing which the church has bought that marriage will fix your loneliness. 
there's companionship and that's a piece of it, but the purpose of marriage is not to fix loneliness. What fixes loneliness is genuine, intimate relationships. Now, oftentimes that can be harder when you're single than when you're married, because when you're married, you share the same bed with somebody. You presumably have kids that are present. You go to church and there's younger married couples. There's other people, your life and stage and age who naturally connect. And that is a little harder for single people. That can be a deeper challenge. So the bottom line solution is I think we need to restructure the, the way the church is done. And we talked about that a little bit earlier. Recognize the gift of singleness. And we have to be very intentional about building healthy relationships. And one theological point is when we get to heaven, marriage ends because we don't need babies. We're not procreating anymore. And in a sense, marriage is pointing forward towards the marriage of the lamb. You know, we are the bride of Christ. But in a sense, we're single in heaven and we're fulfilled. So singleness right now also anticipates heaven, mm -hmm. that we are fulfilled in relationships or we should be with the body of Christ. So the solution is not to get everybody married as wonderful and good as marriage is meant to be. It's to be more intentional about building healthy relationships within the church. Mm -hmm. And if I could just challenge married people and single people right now, especially, uh, I'm hoping by the time this airs, maybe the pandemic will be done. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> but to reach out to your single friends and single mm. friends, reach out to your married friends. Like everyone is battling loneliness right now and figure out ways to do life together. You don't have to do life with every single person, single person that you know, but uh, reach out to some because the loneliness, especially right now, can feel crippling, um, mm. at least for those that I'm in relationship to now. Okay, so I've read different statistics, and I don't know which ones you quoted off the top of my head in your book, but sex before marriage, I think, you know, one study that I threw on the outline I gave to, it's like two-thirds of e evangelical unmarried young adults have had sex. Two-thirds. And I believe there's another statistic I saw that 87% think having sex before marriage is at least neutral, if not okay. Uh, so help, help us understand why that matters to God, sex before marriage. Well, I, in one sense, you could say that that matters to God as much as any behavior that we do matters to God. God yep. says, be holy because I'm holy. That's the proper motivation for sexual purity. It's not be pure now so you don't have regrets in marriage and you have awesome sex when you get married. Well, yeah. you know, studies show that we don't want to have any regrets in our life. Like that makes sense. And there are studies that show that at least religious women who follow biblical pattern for sexuality are the most likely to report sexual satisfaction in terms of quantity and quality they report that so that's a positive but that's not the motivation the motivation is god has made us in his image and we were bought with a price and we were to love god with our body and our soul and our minds and it says in first corinthians 16 it just says the body is a temple of the holy spirit use it to honor the lord so bottom line is God calls us to be holy because we're holy. 
we're called to love him and love our neighbors and sexual activity outside of marriage is not honoring to the Lord and it's not loving our neighbors. As you're talking, I'm just picturing some of the messages I've gotten in the last few days of people who are wrestling with addiction. And again, I'm thinking now in this pandemic time, everything's gone up. Pornography mm. use is between like globally, it's increased between like 11 and 30 percent. Alcohol Gosh. abuse of moms, moms, young moms like me, alcohol addiction. Uh, there's domestic abuse. Everything's going up. My husband's a licensed therapist. He's seen some beautiful things happening in relationships and in marriages and single people. And then there's some real suffering. But what you just touched on, it was this allusion to this love relationship with God. And so if you could write a prescription for people listening who parents, leaders, Gen Z are all in between who are maybe wrestling with addiction, wrestling with some of these questions, but you just touched on it, this love thing with God. If you could write a prescription for them of what's one thing they could do to sink down into the soil of God's marvelous love more, like it says in Ephesians three, or how would mm. you say to do that? Like, what, what would you say is this is what you need to do guys. What's an exhortation you would give to those listening who are like on the edge of, okay, I need, I think I need God. How would you mm. write that prescription to pursue that? I got an email through my website from a, a girl maybe three years ago. And I never email girls directly without copying somebody else on the email. So I copied a friend, a woman who I asked, could you step in and help her? Mm. But I copied her, I said, hey, I'm connecting you with this friend, but I just want you to know one thing, God loves you. Mm. thanks for your email. My friend will take over. Didn't hear anything from her until about, I don't know, six weeks ago. Emailed me again through my site and said, she said, hey, I don't know if you remember me or not, but I was this high school girl. I was hooked on porn. And all you said back was God loves you. She said, I haven't looked at porn since. Wow. She said that wrecked me. I felt so shameful. I felt like nobody would understand, felt like I was the only one. And for you to just lead with grace and God's love. Um, I still have struggles in my life, but that changed me. I'm not saying it's that simple for everybody, but there's something profound about knowing and experiencing God's grace that changes us from the inside out. So I would just say to any of your listeners, I get it. This pandemic has not been easy on anybody. I understand the depression. I understand the loneliness. Like this is not the way it's supposed to be. Mm. And as much as I love the technology to Zoom with my classes at Biola and we're doing this on Zoom, like there's something amazing about this. It's not the same as being present with people. So if I could write a prescription, it would say, know that God loves you, memorize as you said, like Ephesians 3. And when, hi there. Sorry, and that's okay. No, I, I love it. My kids do the same thing sometimes. That's what, actually one of the blessings of Zoom is you yeah. just kind of get to see people in morning sweatshirts and their life. kids rolling in. <laughs> you know, there's something powerful about memorizing scripture. And when you start to hear the lies of Satan, hey, this is shameful. If people knew, what's the matter with you? You just read these scriptures and you own it and you meditate on it. 
And that's how it starts to become who we are. So the one thing would be God loves you and build that into your life through memorizing scripture. And the second thing would be as best you can, just get out of the house, social distance, be with people as much as you can. We have to be face to face. Amen. Amen. Here's my kids. I have my four-year-old and one-year-old here. I love it. I'll get my one-year-old on the screen. Hi, Ellis. How are you? You Good morning. Hi Hi there. Can you you say hi, Ellis? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So cute. Hey, Matt. Here, I'll finish up here. I got all the kids. Here's Sean McDowell. You want to say hi? What's up, Matt? My husband, Matt. Hi. <laughs> How are you, man? He's my usual co-host when there's not a gaggle of kids. All right, I gotta finish it up. Did they just walk in? Yes, they oh just my walked goodness. in. Oh. I love it. Love it. All right, Juju. No. Yes, buddy. Don't I'll see you in five minutes. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, no. buddy. Juliet. Okay. All right, Sean. Um, you, I just. You, yeah, you know what, Lori? I'm, I'm gonna. Mom, I'm gonna jump in here and say things. something. Okay. Um, my, uh, my dad speaks, he used to speak on university campuses to tens of thousands of people. And one year when I, when he was speaking, I was probably four or five, six years old. He was speaking on sex and I walked out on the stage in front of thousands of people. And you know what a, a, some pastors might do? Hey, go away, be quiet. You know, I, I'm speaking, I'll get you later. My dad picked me up, put me on the podium. He said the audience, he said, hey, we're talking about sex. Clearly, this is where this kid came from. Let's talk. (laughs) And I'm telling you, Lori, to this day, I still have people say, I was there in 1980, whatever it was. And that's all I remember. That's all I remember. So thanks for letting your kids just come in and be a part of it. I mean, this is... People remember that, and it's it's being real. That's hopefully what we're supposed to do. So yeah, thanks. I got tears in my eyes. It's a good. It's a, such a strange world, but it's so. It's that's encouraging to hear from people further down the line that this crazy mishmash of seeking Jesus in real life with your kids and family, it can be really great. It can be really Amen. great. Man, Sean, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation today and for the work you're doing. And I know it's not easy. This is a hard um, space. This is a hard territory, but God is producing much fruit. And I see that in your life and Mm. through this book. Well, thanks for having me on and having the courage to talk about this conversation. I can only imagine the fire that you get friendly and non but I know for me, I just ask myself, am I hopefully living this and teaching what scripture says that I can, I can deal with it? So I know you're doing that and keep it up. I appreciate the opportunity to, to share. Oh, man, guys, that was an adventure and really rich. And I hope that, you know, here we are talking about parents and how we can answer these questions of our kids and as leaders and hello to my own children. Um, but I was really blessed by uh, just that whole conversation. Guys, we do have a question of the week for next week. And I want to hear from you on this one because I just am curious. What kind of a mask wearer are you? Do you like get out of the store and you rip that puppy off immediately? Or do you get home like my dear husband does? He gets home and I'm like, you're still wearing your mask. And he's like, huh. <laughs> he doesn't even notice. Uh 
I want to hear it from you. You can email us at podcast at lauricreek.com or find me on Instagram, Facebook. Those two are the places where I'm the most uh, active, especially with these questions of the week. Or you can find us at the Hole in My Heart Podcast Facebook group. Just search Hole in My Heart Podcast on Facebook. Ask to join, answer a couple of questions, and we'll let you in. Thanks again to Sean McDowell. Go get that book, Chasing Love, released at the beginning of December. And for all of us, and I mean all of us here at the Hole in My Heart Podcast, we will see you next week.